hopefully there's a, you've got an outline there to help you. Because in this section, we get an insight into why John is writing this letter. We've really just covered the first chapter or so, but tonight as we look at chapter 2, verses 18 and following, we're going to see the reason that John is writing this letter. And the reality was that the early church, as John wrote to them, was a church that was threatened. It was small and vulnerable. And it was also persecuted. But it wasn't its size, its relative powerlessness, nor was it the imperial powers of Rome that John was concerned about. It wasn't its smallness, and it wasn't the external powers that worried John. It was an internal threat that concerned him. He wasn't concerned with the power of Rome. He was concerned with how the church held the truth. And that's why in chapter 2, verse 26, he says this. Open up to 1 John chapter 2. He says this in verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Do you see the threat that's before the church? It's not outside. It's inside. It's those within the church who are seeking to lead the church astray. As we were chatting earlier, it's the job of parents to warn children. My parents warned me constantly uh, of danger because I was always getting myself into trouble and amongst danger. Parents always do this. Be careful, Stuart. Be careful, Jesse. Uh, one of the things I, I noticed in Kenya uh, was how willing children are just to come up to you. Children don't do that in Australia, do they? they children at the supermarket don't just come up to you. Why? Because they've been warned. Parents warn children, rightfully, of the dangers of just walking up to strangers. They don't do that in Kenya. See, what a parent's job is to do, partly, is to teach a child the dangers that are before them. And now, particularly with the internet, it's not the job of a parent just to teach a child. What happens, for those of us who have parents post-60, it's the job of a child to teach the parent of the dangers that the parent might be getting to on the internet. And it's not enough as a parent just to kind of glibly say, oh, look, you know, you better be worried because there's danger out there. No decent, self-respecting parent could be casual about the danger that was before their children. And that's, well, John's not casual here in this section. It's got a fierce tone to it. It's a tone of warning. It's a tone of warning because he's worried about the danger that is in front of this church. John doesn't say simply that there are liars out there somewhere. John is helping the church to see there are liars in the church amongst God's people who are intent on its destruction because the forces of evil, as we read throughout history, the forces of evil seek to destroy the church and they seek to destroy the church by fishing in the lake of Christian loyalty. That's why Mark's gospel, Jesus says these words, and they come with such clarity. He says this in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, for those taking notes, he says, For false Christs 
and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. See, these words of Jesus are a prophecy. They're a prophecy that has been and is in the course of fulfilment. So do you believe that? Do you believe in John's warning, these words of Jesus? Well, probably you do. Probably you know, you've been around enough to know that there's some people who claim that they're Christian who aren't, they have some wacky ideas out there somewhere. But can I ask you this more probing question? Do you believe that it may be for you a present danger, the belief in false teachers? I, I, don't, I think that's a question that perhaps many of us wouldn't be too worried about. Perhaps we're quite casual with what we believe. Perhaps we're the equivalent of the spiritually gullible. We don't think of ourselves, though, do we? We don't think of ourselves as the spiritual equivalent of those who could be, um, you know, fall prey to a spiritual Nigerian scam. We're far too discerning as Christian people to fall for that trick, far too well taught. But what if falling for that kind of spiritual scam wasn't just a matter of the head? What if it wasn't just a matter of how much you knew? But what if it was a matter of your heart and the disposition of your heart towards God? See, John's warning is real. John's warning was real back in the first century and it is real for us in the 21st century. You see, we're up to point B in our first point, John's twofold approach. Because as John sees this danger that's before the church, he, he has a twofold approach. John is both challenging the falsehood, and we'll see the challenge there in verse 18 and following, but he's not simply challenging what is against the church. He also wants to encourage those within it. You see there in verse 21, he wants to confirm the genuine. Because as John raises his issues of, issue of false teachers within the church, it doesn't take much to imagine that many in the church might be wondering, have I been deceived? In fact, am I a deceiver? And so John's strategy isn't simply to confront what's wrong, he'll do that, but it's also to encourage those who are of sound faith. He wants to reassure them. Have a look there in verse 21. See, what's at stake? He says, I don't want to write to you because you don't know the truth. No, the opposite's true. He's writing to them because they already know it. And what have these false teachers done? They've come and they've undermined this truth that they have held. He's trying to encourage them that they can pick the lie when it, they come across it. That they will be able to discern the truth. That as in our first reading, Jesus will guide them all into all truth. And so for John... There's no new tricks here. Have a look there in verse 24, confirming the truth. See what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. John's approach here is not to explain to them matters of theology that they have 
never come across before. He actually just wants to confirm those solid realities of biblical foundation, of Christian foundation, that they already know. And this is the task of teaching within the Christian church. It's not as much innovation as it is confirmation. Now, I would love, I'm, I'm stimulated by new ideas. And I'd love to give you new ideas about Christianity every week, but that's not my job. My job isn't to innovate with the truth. My job is to confirm the truth that some of you have known from childhood, that some some of you have come to embrace as adults. We see this throughout the scriptures that uh, Peter, for example, writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, so I will always remind you. It's nothing new. He's just reminding them of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to what? Refresh your memory. As John writes, he's wanting to remind them of basic foundational truths about who Jesus is. Because this is the way that they'll combat this false teaching and error that's come into the church. It's not by sophisticated, high-sounding ideas, but basic, foundational, solid truths about who Jesus is, as we'll see in a moment. Up to point two, a present threat. The threat to the church, as John wrote to them, wasn't something that John was speculating that might happen in the future. Now, if you have a look there in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's something that's happening for them now. He says, dear children, hear that sense of warning, this is the last hour, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. And even now many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is last hour. See John's logic? He's saying that there are false teachers, false prophets. His language for it is the antichrist. We'll come to who that might be in a moment. But John's saying that the presence of false teaching around Christianity isn't the sign that Christianity is on the decline. No. The opposite is true. The presence of those who would seek to corrupt the Christian message tells us that the last hour has come. The presence of those that would seek to distort what is foundational and solid Christian truth tells us that there's something in that truth that endangers the evil one and his plans. Because, what's John's reason there? What does he say a number of times? Because the last hour is here. And this is how we know that the last hour has come, because these false teachers are here. What does he mean by the last hour? Well, in the Bible, we come across this language, like the last hour, last day, last time. They're used pretty well interchangeably in the New Testament, and they used to identify the period of time which started with Christ's coming and will end with Christ's return in power and glory. So when John speaks about the last hour, when Paul speaks about the last day, he's speaking about that period of time that we're in now, that gap between when Jesus came and when he'll return. 
And in that return, as we anticipate that return of Christ, all the forces of heaven and hell are arranged against one another, whilst are arranged against one another in this last time, these last days. See, because the Bible understands that our world is not some random cycle that we are caught in. But the Bible understands that we are moving to a destination. We're moving to a destination in our world when Christ will return. Our world is not lost in some time-space capsule, endlessly spinning into nothing. Now the Bible tells us that our world and our lives are under the sovereign control of a God who came surely 2,000 years ago and as surely as he came 2,000 years ago, he surely will return. And this is what John is saying. The last hour has been struck. There is nothing new to happen. That's why it's the last day. That's why it's the last hour. Because all that had been promised about Jesus has come in his incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his acceptance. Ascension, and there's nothing that remains except his return. And I think John, with his apostolic insight, saw evil rallying in his day. He saw the danger before this, these churches that he writes to. He saw that men and women's hearts were consumed with anything but vital and spiritual things. Just like the Apostle Paul said, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Mark this, there will be terrible times when? In the last days. What will happen? He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, and without self-control, brutal, and not lovers of good. You see, when Paul wrote, they were in the last days. And if you think about our world, people who are lovers of money, proud, disobedient, abusive. We're in the last days. Because despite close to 2,000 years between when John writes and the world that we exist in, it remains true today. Later on, we'll pick up the identity of uh, the Antichrist in John chapter 4, verse 3. If you quickly get a... Um, an insight into it, uh, a, a preview. If you want to flick over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, you'll see that he does give some indication as to who uh, the Antichrist is. He says, But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Does that mean that, is John saying, therefore, that anyone who's not a Christian is therefore the Antichrist? Well, not exactly, because you have to combine that with, if you flick back over to chapter 2, just the next verse going on from verse 18, verse 19, these antichrists are not just random people out there, but these antichrists are those that were, what is it, verse 19? Those that were part of the church. They went out from us, 19, but they did not really belong to us. These antichrists are people who have been 
happily, gladly marching under the banner of Christ, but they have declared their true colours. And so the reality of the Antichrist actually raises, I think, a significant question for us. And that question is to do with our faith and our eternal security. What does it mean? If there are people who look as though that they're Christian, they're, um, they do the same things, they pray the same prayers, for all intents and purpose, everything like we think a Christian is, and then it doesn't take long for us to be around a church to hear that some people do fall away from Christian faith. Uh, I met a lady on holidays as we were away on our trip in Kenya. Her husband is a highly educated man, went to theological college in Sydney, was one of the most thought-out guys in his year at Bible college. Now, he's wandered away from faith. He hasn't just wandered, really. He's run from Christian faith. He actively seeks to persuade his children not to believe in anything Christian. What does it mean for us in terms of eternal security? Is our eternal security, is our assurance knowing that we are going to heaven, is that, is that merely based on our ability to hold on to our faith? Well, what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, 13, these words, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Question, who will be saved? Jesus' answer, whoever stands firm to the end. Simple. So does that mean that salvation is a reward for standing firm? You know, you're still a Christian. It's probably because you're a bit tougher spiritually than those people who wandered away. It's probably because um, you've known a couple more things than other people. It's probably because you've gone to a slightly better church than those other people who have fallen away. Is that what it means? No. What does it mean? What does it mean if you are still Christian? What it means is that standing firm is the evidence of genuine faith. Because it's the work of the Spirit of God that convicts us and holds us. The role and the work of the Spirit of God is to draw us back when we wander, when we wander off, when we do our own thing. See, many of us might feel, I mean, some of us feel like our faith is rock solid and we would never fall away being Christian, but I don't know there's many of us like that. I think most of us and sometimes uh, many of us feel often we're just hanging on to our faith by just our fingernails. But it's the Spirit of God who's holding on to us. We might feel like it's our fingernails that are just holding on to God, but it's his strong hand who is holding on to us because this is the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to convict us of sin. The work of the Spirit is to draw us to the one who saves us from our sin. But the work of the Spirit is also to keep us going in the one who has convicted us of sin and has saved us 
from our sin. It is God's spirit who holds us fast. Our love and our loves are so often lukewarm, if not cold. But he holds us fast. See, why are you perhaps still Christian here tonight? Well, it's not because you've always been faithful. It's because even though we are faithless, he is faithful. We are prone to wander as we sing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So staying faithful to the end is not a reward for your effort, but is evidence of his work in your life and of your salvation. The perseverance of the saints is not our ability to struggle and just to keep going. The perseverance of the saints is based in his ability to hold on to us and to keep us. John Calvin wrote that those who fall away have never been thoroughly imbued with the knowledge of Christ, but only had a slight and passing taste. You see, those there are some who hang around churches, who are part of churches, who just have a who have a have a lick without fully tasting. The Puritans used to say that there are some who share our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth. Thirdly, the threat to this church is based not around the physical violence that the Roman Empire might uh, inflict upon them. The threat to this church is based upon what they believe about who Jesus is. You'll see that in verses 22 and 23. Verse 23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. See, what one of the problems within the early church was based around the question of who was Jesus? Who was he as a person? Who was he as a man? Was he really and truly human? Who was he as God? Was he really and truly God? And it seems though that they here in John's time, there were some that were denying the incarnation. Now there are plenty of people who deny that Jesus is the Christ, but not all of them are the Antichrist. I think the focus here is those within the church who are denying both the the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And this this is a serious situation for us because we live in this age of intellectual toleration where... It's, it's really hard to believe in something with conviction. But this is what we do as Christian people. We confess that Jesus is fully human and fully God because no one who denies the Son, no one who denies the humanity of Jesus and no one who denies the divinity of Jesus can claim to know God. You can't claim to know God and not know who Jesus is. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 5, verse 22. He says himself, He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. 
There's a lot more we could say about this, but the reality of who Jesus is is something that we need to hold on to tenaciously. It's something that we need to commit ourselves to knowing, to knowing more about what it means for Jesus to be human. Because that's a wonderful and beautiful and encouraging truth to know that he sympathised with us in our humanity. It's important for us to dig deep into the reality about what it means for him to be God, that the word, the word that was with the Father from all eternity, that word became flesh without emptying out any of his divinity. He became flesh while remaining divine. We need to hold on to these truths because we're not trying to market Jesus as simply another option out there in our world. We declare, as in Acts chapter 4, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men which we must be saved. This is what we need to hold on to. And it's not arrogance. It's vital truth. And so how do we respond to this threat? Well, we need to combat it in the three ways, finally, there in point four. First of all, John draws our attention to this anointing. Now, it seems as though uh, this word anointing had a special meaning in the context uh, of the church that John was writing to. You see there in verse 22, he's saying that, well, who has this anointing? But you have an anointing. Verse 27 as well. As for you, the anointing you received remains from him in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. I don't think when he says you don't need anyone to teach you, he's saying you don't need a teacher. I think what he's saying is you don't need these false teachers to teach you anything new if God has taught you. See, the word there for anoint, kind of, you know, it, uh, we don't really use that word, although they use it when they crown the queen. She's anointed, the crown kings. But the word anoint there is the word uh, in the original for charisma. It was probably used by these false teachers uh, in a special way, uh, asking, coming into the church, asking them, have you got this anointing? Do you have this charisma? And they're going, well, no. I, I don't know if I've got this anointing. I don't know if I've got this charisma. Can you tell me more about it? I mean, you've, you've been, if you've been a Christian for a little while, you know that there are those out in our world and even some who've come into our church who have believed these kinds of things um, who have said, well, you know, you need a special knowledge of God. I know that you might be a Christian and you might trust in Jesus, but, but have you a special knowledge of God and a special knowledge of Jesus? Because what you are, you're really at stage one. But if you follow my course, believe this, then what we can do is we can take you to this higher plane, this stage two, where I'm at, of course, this stage two of Christian living. And that's fantastic up there because nothing ever worries you. You never doubt anything. You don't have any problems and everything's fantastic. You can see the appeal. The appeal is the same as it was in the first century as it is to us. I mean, there must be something easier in the Christian life than just reading your Bible and praying. This is why this section is important for us today. 
Because John is saying that the privilege of the Christian isn't for some selected few. The privilege of the Christian, this anointing, isn't for those who have done an extra course, paid some more money, partaken in a special ritual. The anointing of God by his spirit is the right of every Christian. It's a birthright of every Christian. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So friends, if you're trusting in Jesus today, if you're at just level one, struggling, holding on with all you've got, don't let anyone knock you off from that perch by making you feel inferior, subpar as a Christian. Secondly, we need to hold on to this teaching. You can see there in verse 24, that it's the teaching that they heard from the beginning that they need to hold on to. It's the simple truths, the simple truths that we're teaching there out in Point Kids that we need to hold on to. And it's a humility of heart that trembles before the scriptures that we need. Even when we can't understand it, we need to still know it's true because the problem is not the word of God when we don't understand it. The problem is us. The word of God is not invalidated by our slowness, our hardness, our denseness, and even our refusal. The word of God has to be held by faith from the believer as the word of God. And this is what's happened throughout the centuries. It's not as though Um, simply that in the 21st century we live in a time that's unique where the word of God is despised by our wider society. We've lived, the Christian church has lived through these times before, through much of its time, particularly in its early period. There was a man called Athanasius. Athanasius lived in the 4th century. He was um, a bishop and there were around two or three hundred other bishops, uh, all powerful men. And there was the Roman emperor. And they were very casual. They were very casual about who Jesus was. They thought it was sufficient if they as a church could accept that Jesus was simply like God. But Athanasius wasn't casual about the truth. He said that that was not good enough. You can't simply say that Jesus is like God because that's not what the word of God says. Jesus is God, the Son, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity is God in every way that the Father is God. And there Athanasius stood against the world. Athanasius' nickname was Contra Modem, against the world, because he was against all the other bishops He was against the Roman emperor with all his forces. In fact, he was driven out of town six or seven times. They were chasing him once. And uh, the imperial forces were chasing him. He ran along a wharf. He jumped into a boat. And there, as the uh, imperial guard came to arrest him, they saw this little scrawny man in a boat. And they thought, this can't be Athanasius. This is the man who was against the world. And so they left. 
Athanasius free. You see, it's not just in the 21st century that what we believe in the Bible is at odds with our world. This is the history of the Christian church. And so we can't take it for granted. This is why we need a depth of faith. Not so we will be able to impress others, but so we might be able to take a child on our knee, a grandchild on our knee, and we might give them not a man's view of the world, but God's view of the world. And we can only do that if we ourselves have sat on the knee of our Heavenly Father, if we ourselves have remained in him, verse 24. There's two safeguards for us to remain in him. That is to hear the word, verse 24, and to receive the spirit, verse 27. On the one hand, receiving the word is the objective truth. And on the other hand, receiving the Spirit is the subjective experience. And we need both. We need the Word of God and the Spirit of God coming together in our lives. It's been said, all Spirit, no Word, and the people blow up. All Word and no Spirit, and the people dry up. Both Spirit and Word, and the people grow up. John's deep concern is that these old and precious truths might be believed, that we would abide in them, that we would remain in them, and that it is in this apostolic word and in the power of his spirit that we are to remain until the day we see him and rejoice at his coming. Amen. Please stand as we